Welcome back to Dev Dive episode 30. I'm your host, Nighthawk. Today's guest is Riot Ania, a strategic advisor and researcher for the Valorant team. Thanks for joining me today. Let's get into it. Um, My pleasure. I'm excited. <laughs> very excited for this one. So before we start the show, I wanted to uh, just go into a brief um, review of how we got into contact and how you decided you wanted to come on the show. So just like last week's guest, Jared, um, after the Reddit post I made, which got a decent amount of popularity, um, you actually reached out and, and commented on the post and you said, hey, this is awesome. This is the kind of thing that I'd be really interested in. Uh, before I joined Riot, I would have, I would have binged to these. And I thought, hey, this is a great opportunity. I'm like, hey, do you want to come on the show? And you very, very generously uh, said, yes, I would. So here we are a couple weeks later. Uh, very excited to get into it and talk things up because your pitch was excellent. You said, I make the Valorant team make good or help the Valorant team make good decisions. So uh, I myself am a good decision maker and I'm sure you are as well. So I think everyone in chat will benefit very uh, greatly from our great decision making prowess. I'm excited yes, to talk about that today. The wisest of dev dives. <laughs> <laughs> the best dev dives so far, and that's going to be a guarantee. So let's talk a bit about what a strategic advisor slash researcher actually does and what that sort of looks like for the end user at uh, on a game like Valorant. Yeah, so strategic advisory is our department, and it has a bunch of different kind of subgroupings within it. There are researchers, there are analysts, there are revenue strategists, and a few other groups of people, where essentially our job is to partner with different teams at Riot. In my case, it would be various teams on the game team that is Valorant. And we help them to make good decisions. That can be, you know, kind of the um, you know, rolling up your sleeves kind of work of running player labs, launch, launching surveys, doing like big data analytics, uh, running prediction models and forecasting for revenue. Uh, it can also be uh, kind of the more strategic advisory component of that job, which is supporting them in their decision-making processes, um, you know, helping them to identify different goals for their products, different assumptions that they're making and how to test those assumptions. Um, we are involved all the way from, you know, the earliest, what are the different opportunities that we have here that we could tackle all the way through to uh, the product is getting shipped and live to players. So in terms of what players actually see from us, most likely that's going to be things like surveys and player labs, but we're actually really deeply involved in pretty much everything our teams do. So at the very baseline, that's where your team is involved. Everything that goes through this sort of decision-making process at least touches your team. That's great. Yeah, the, the, the joke that I have with uh, one of the teams that I support, the social and player dynamics team, the running joke is like, if we mention the word goals audience or metrics like we have to talk with leah first and i'm like that's that's pretty accurate yeah <laughs> i bet a lot of conversations happen then because those seem to be very favorite words of the people who i've, I've talked to <laughs> yes definitely um a lot of my job is having meetings so oh man i love meetings not really <laughs> So. I, I have to say, I like it a whole lot more in the not work from home context, because then it's like you're there, you know, you're just like chatting for the first five minutes, hanging out in like a, you know, one of the pod rooms or whatever yeah. they call them. And now it's just kind of like I stare at my screen endlessly. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's important to to learn how to get away. One of the favorite memes in my friend group is um, it's two it's two panels. It's like 
tired of looking at bad screen. I want to go home and look at good screen. <laughs> and it's it's now that we're on work from home, it's so hard to differentiate between the two. Um, I know somebody who actually sets up two separate monitors. I, it was one of the guests on the podcast, I think. And um, he'll only use this monitor for work. And it's like his work monitor. And then when he's done with work, he'll physically turn off that monitor and like move it away. And then he'll go over to his gaming monitor. And that'll be his like way to separate work from from play. <laughs> so I thought that was really yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think that's... I think that's actually super important. Um, I have kind of a similar thing where this is my work setup. This is where I do worky things. But like when work's done and I want to like watch some Netflix or some critical role or something like that, I specifically have in my office like a, a big comfy chair and I'll set up my laptop there. And that's where I sit to like engage with entertainment media because if i'm sitting in this desk even if it's like in the morning and i'm drinking my coffee and i'm like just gonna check reddit or something if i'm sitting on this desk it's like oh it's work time i should check my emails i should check slack yeah. i should do all these things and it, it's very hard to turn off if you don't physically put yourself in a different space i have the huge mistake of having slack open when i first start my computer just automatically and when i open it i see that little red dot in the corner i'm like nope don't look at you Stay away. <laughs> Keep that closed. <laughs> yes. Not gonna check you until work time, but sometimes I don't. I don't get through that. Um. Yeah, but how have you been handling lockdown? Has has you mentioned the meeting life has definitely gone downhill? But how has other things been going in terms of your workflow? Yeah. So, um, I mean, in terms of my job, I'm very fortunate in that I am capable of doing my job from home. There are folks, you know, who work in like live service who like still need to be on campus to do their job. So I'm lucky in that sense, but it does mean that I just spend so much of my time in Zoom meetings and, you know, Google Hangouts and things like that. Um, but in terms of like getting good work done, I feel like, you know, things have been going really well with work. I've adjusted to the whole, you know, my friends and I have virtual hangouts and like use Discord screen share to watch movies together. Um, and, you know, lockdown does drive me a little bit crazy. I'm someone that likes to go out. I like novel experiences and doing things and going out to eat and things like that, which uh, I live in Los Angeles. And uh, the last records that I saw, uh, one in five people had uh had were covid positive so yeah. it's like i'm just gonna stay home so uh i'd say I'm, I'm a combination between like i'm getting my work done and, and doing that just fine uh and also like i'm going a little crazy so <laughs> i got really unlucky so i moved to los angeles in january of uh 2020 to start my job and i was like this is great this is gonna be a new chapter for me because i i'm from a very small town in north carolina so like moving to los angeles that's like the biggest change in the world I'm like, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to go out and do so many things once I get settled in. I'm like, this is going to be great. Um, two months after nope. I moved to Los Angeles, <laughs> they got a little alert on my phone and said, hey, you're not allowed to go outside anymore. Please uh, please stay inside unless you're going and buying groceries. I'm like, oh, that's, that sucks, but it's not going to be that big of a deal. It won't last that long. Uh, Ten months later, um, I moved back to North Carolina because if I'm going to be paying Los Angeles prices, at least I might as well be enjoying Los Angeles. And I said, if I'm going to be remote and I'm not going to enjoy this, I might as well live in some place that gives me a, a decent cost of living. So back in NC yeah, now. That's, but... that's very reasonable. I'm sorry <laughs> you had that experience. That's super rough. Um, if you don't mind me asking, we're in North Carolina. I went to undergrad at uh, ECU. Oh, really? So I have so many friends who go to ECU. Um, I live in Raleigh right now. I'm from New Bern, which is like a small, very little small town, about an hour from Greenville. 
Um, but yeah, oh, I live in nice. Raleigh now. And it's really nice. I enjoy the atmosphere. It's a lot quieter. Going from the smallest town in the world to one of the biggest towns in the world was like a bit much for me. So now I'm sort of getting used to the transition with a medium town in the world. Um, so I'm excited for that. But Very nice. Uh, yeah, no, it was weird. It was very odd because I had so many plans. Um, I was like, I'm going to go to LCS every weekend. I'm going to go and visit my friends who live in Santa Monica or up in the Valley or so-and-so. And, um, it just didn't work out. And, and it didn't hit me like hard. Like you would think like, oh, it'd be this big wall of like, oh, you just lost all this opportunity, but it didn't really hit me hard. It was just like, eh, maybe I'll get to do that in the future. But yeah, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. That's a that's a rough transition to have, but hopefully you can make your way out to LA again. That's yeah, a- I'm I'm very hopeful for the future, and I I think that we finally crossed the. Um, I saw an article the other day where more people have been vaccinated than people who have been infected with coronavirus. So that was a pretty big landmark. So hopefully we're on the road to recovery, and maybe we'll get back to some semblance of normal soon. Although, from what I've talked to a lot of people, I think the new normal is going to be uh, a little different than people were used to in 2019. But yeah, um, enough about the depressing real world con- uh, comments. Let's talk more about, about game dev. Let's go. <laughs> let's talk about your interests and hobbies outside of gaming. Um, let's talk about anything that you like to do that isn't play video games or talk about video games or work on video games. <laughs> Okay, cool. Yeah, I can do that. Um, so I am a game-oriented person, which also mm-hmm. means I really enjoy tabletop games. I love D&D. Um, those are things that I'm, I'm currently uh, doing a, not a full homebrew campaign, but there's a lot of custom work to it right now that I'm, I'm DMing. And so um, I am a... I am a patron of the arts in every possible way. So uh, the map building and the story building and the character development and relational development that comes with building out the story is something I'm really deeply invested in. Um, In addition to those things, I uh, paint and I play music and I sing and I knit and I sculpt and I sew and I basically, if it's art, I do it. I actually, um, it's it's certainly fallen off my radar these days because I've been kept very busy with my my work. But uh, I was a a professional cosplayer for a long a long while. That's awesome. Um, and that was a fun yeah that was a, that was a fun time in my life. Um, and let's see what else do I do? I am a mother of two cats who you wouldn't think they take up much of your time because they're very self sustaining creatures. But the amount of time that I like talk and play with my cats is like a good chunk of my day. So. That definitely has to get acknowledged. And um, I really love to travel. That hasn't been a part of my life recently for aforementioned reasons we won't go back to. Um, but I'm a, a huge uh, lover of traveling and learning languages and getting um, you know, exposure to just different areas of the world and their cultures. So uh, as soon as this is all over, I'm <laughs> just going to be, I'm going to be like, hey, you know how I worked remotely for like 12 months? Can I, can I do that? from Europe. Would that be cool? <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see how that conversation goes. That would be exciting. Um, I never, yeah, I never thought about that. Just moving to a different continent and still working remote. That would be a lot of fun. I'm sure that transition is a lot of uh, work for everyone involved, but 
Yeah, I'm yeah, I couldn't you, move like... permanently for sure. <laughs> but like, if I wanted to just dip out to Europe for a month and be like, oh, I'll attend meetings. It'll just be at weird times. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight for that. I'll see how that conversation goes. Well, I'm rooting for you. That sounds, that sounds awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. But okay. Well, how about how about the nitty gritty, the 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 beginnings of of your interest in game dev? Let's talk about education and employment history my favorite topic on this show so ah, yes okay <laughs> one of the goals of dev dive is to give new people an opportunity to sort of have a window into the game dev world and, and understand how people who have made it so to speak um got their break got their chance to get into game dev and everyone's story is so different so i love talking about everything because some people never went to college some people went to college for something completely different but uh, where did you start? Like, so what, what degrees do you have and, and why did you choose them? Yeah. So I would say that I also have one of those atypical paths. Uh, I actually have a, a PhD in counseling psychology. Wow. So yeah. So, uh, throughout grad school, I was, you know, uh, doing research as one does. Uh, and I was also doing teaching and clinical work. So I was a, uh, a licensed mental health therapist for, for years before I came to riot. That's that's an, that's incredible. Um, that is quite a transition. Uh, so yeah. when did you first realize that you wanted to be in game dev? Well, I so I have been a gamer my entire life. Um, and it I never saw myself as having the skill sets that would be required to be in game dev. Um, because I think you know when you're younger, you're like, oh, you just need to be like really good at computers and computer science, and that's how you get into game. Dev. That's the only jobs that are ever existing in game dev is like computer science and like art modeling. And I have to say, the one art that I don't do is like digital modeling. So um, when I was in my senior year of undergrad, I went to uh, a, a PAX East, so a gaming convention on the East Coast and ran into a rioter for the first time. I was in my cosplay and ended up chatting with them and they had mentioned that they employed a psychologist who, uh, you know, studied players. And at this point, you know, I majored in psychology. I was planning on going to grad school in psychology. Um, now, when I was, oh gosh, how old was I when I was a senior in college? I think I was like 21 years old. I was pretty young. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I knew that I liked psych and I knew that I was really good at school and I knew that I wasn't tired of going to school yet. Um, so I ended up, you know, saying like, I'll pursue psych. It's really hard to get a job in psych if you don't go to grad school. I really like school. So I'm going to apply to PhD programs and, uh, counseling psychology, fun fact is one of the most flexible degree programs you could possibly have specifically a PhD in counseling psych. Um, because within, with that degree, you can do like teaching, you can do private clinical work, you could do government clinical work, you can do, um, uh, working for the government, you can do consultation, you can do, uh, the type of work that I do. It's like, there is a massive spread of the type of work that you can do with that degree. And so I was like, this seems like a really good degree path for me because I'm not totally sure what I want to do yet. But when I had that, you know, senior year interaction with a rioter, uh, riot became the dream for me. It was the thing that lived in the back of my head that was like the stretch goal. And uh, so I ended up going uh, to my, my PhD program. It was a uh, one where you kind of like got your master's along the way. They give you a little pat on the head and they tell you to keep going. Um, so throughout that time, I uh, my research focused on social behavior in games. 
different personality factors that predicted different types of social behavior, how gamers cope with frustration that they experience online. But in the back of my head and in my free time, I was studying market research methods, lean UX research methods, uh, all those things, because Riot was the goal after graduation. Um, it was an interesting path. Uh, you know, there were some people in that field who were very resistant to the idea of me studying gaming because it wasn't, you know, counseling psychology enough. Um, but funny enough, the skills that I learned in being a therapist and a counselor actually have massive implications for the work that I do now. And I think it actually makes me a much better partner to have, uh, in terms of work. So, uh, yeah, uh, I also, you know, applied to Riot two times and got rejected for internships uh, before I made the final, you know, full-time application and ended up getting the role. So um, I, al I always like to introduce that in the beginning because, like, if you get rejected, your story doesn't have to end there. You know, keep going, keep at it, uh, take the learnings from with what you can, and eventually, hopefully, you know, you can you can get to where you're working towards. Definitely. Some of the best guests we've had on the show have, have a story where they applied to their dream company a couple of times and it didn't work out. They didn't get accepted. And either they tried again and they did get accepted or they found out that their other job was going to be their dream job in the future. They moved on to something else. So definitely don't be uh, discouraged if, if your first or second or even third or however many it takes applications don't get accepted. Um, just keep working on what you're working on, show your passion, show your um, drive to to do what you need to do. So that it definitely helps. It, it shows when you're in interviews when people people can tell when you're genuinely excited about a topic. Um, yeah, and and be adaptable too. I know that after the first uh, the first time that I got that on-site interview and got rejected, they gave me some feedback. And it was stuff that I still remember to this day what they told me because moving on after that, I was like, okay, if I apply for this again, they're going to look in my file. They're going to see that they gave me that feedback and they better darn well see that I actually improved in those areas. So always seek feedback and incorporate that because it's probably something that they're going to be on the lookout for in the future. That's a sign of a good interviewer too, if they actually give you feedback. A lot of the times when I ask for feedback, when I'm applying for positions, um, they'll either ignore you completely or they'll be like, oh, you're great. It was just not the right fit at this time. <laughs> yeah, so. that's a bad interviewer, in my opinion. Yeah. I can understand if it's like a desk reject, you know, if if HR is getting 300 applications for one role, it's probably pretty hard to give feedback on all of them. But if you're getting to a point where like someone's sitting down and talking with you, my hope would be that they can give you some feedback on it. I went through uh, a interview process for a company, uh, a big, big tech company in San Francisco. And I got to the eighth round of interviews because this company did a lot of interviews. And after the eighth interview, which I thought I did very well on, um, a, a few days later, they're like, hey, wasn't the right fit. Uh, we'll keep your resume on file for the future. And I said, hey, could I get some, some insight onto why this wasn't going to work out? Why? And they're just like, yeah, just we had other stronger suited experienced candidates at the time. And I'm like, okay, thank you. That doesn't help me. I just wasted three, six weeks of my life working on this. That's um, rough. Yeah. Yeah. But when the door closed, a window opened and now I'm where I'm at and I'm pretty happy. Um, awesome. But so here's the big question for you. And I, I, I think I know the answer already, but I'd like to ask it because I think this is interesting. Would you recommend for people getting into a role for you, like what you have done, 
would you recommend taking that similar path that you took? Because you have a very, a very long path to get to where you are today. Yeah, I would say if you really enjoy the meandering, like very non-linear path to get to where you're going, and you also happen to be deeply passionate about mental health and well-being, then like, yeah, sure, <laughs> go ahead and go for that path. But if you're like, I want to get into game dev and do game science, then no. Uh, I definitely had to do a lot of side work and I I have grown so much since coming to Riot. Like just the way that my brain thinks about these problem spaces, it is wildly different. So I, I would say that uh, my path is not the one that will prepare you best, but it will provide you with some interesting life experiences being a therapist for several years. So <laughs> there's always that. So if you don't mind, do you want to talk a little bit about each role you've had before you joined, right? And and some of the highs and lows of those jobs. I know you said you were a counselor for a little while and a therapist, um, but I'd like to go more in yeah. depth on those. Yeah. So I think before, I mean, before I came to Riot, a lot of the jobs that I had were wrapped up into this grad school experience. So I'm happy to talk through those. Uh, it's not often that I get asked about those, so I like it. Um, so working in research in uh in grad school, at least for me, was essentially doing my own personal branded research, which was meant to build my own brand, as well as doing research for the institution, for the research lab in which I was involved. Um, and those are those are interesting worlds to live in. Um, when you work for a university, you know, uh, all right, let me let me back up a little bit. Scientific research that you do for the sake of academia and publications is wildly different than the research that you do in game dev. Um, for example, uh, you need to have these Loctite methodologies. Uh, you need to format papers in the exact way to get some reviewer to agree that this is some addition to science. Um, the style of writing is, is so wildly different. Um, and of course, then there's grant writing where you have to convince people to give you money to do the research that you're doing. It also is uh, very cutthroat in a way that was really incompatible with who I am, where you were constantly scouring the internet to find someone else who beat you to the experiment that you were trying to run. You were constantly scouring uh, the, the publications that were coming out to see if uh, there was an opportunity for um, essentially someone else to beat you to it and uh, a different opportunity for you to be able to dive into. So um, with all that, I, it was a different lifestyle for sure. I love research. I love the pursuit of knowledge and science, but the way that it happens in academia, I think requires a really, there's a certain kind of diligence to that work where it's not so much focused on practical application as it is just like the pursuit of knowledge. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a, a different one. So there was that. And again, don't get me wrong. I, I used to call it my like late night research and waffles where it's like midnight and I'm eating my ego waffles and like running my analyses over and over again, praying to God that I see that like P is less than 0.05 value. Shout out to all my stats fans there. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a different life. Uh, so that, that was kind of the research component, which I would consider a job that I did. Um, there was being, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, um, no I, I was going to, no, go ahead. Okay, okay cool. Um, there was also, I was a university professor. So in my time, uh, you know, during the summers in between grad programs and while I was in grad programs, I was both like a teaching assistant as well as had full responsibility for teaching courses. My favorite one to teach was Psych 101. 
And uh, that's intro to psych, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of the people that I worked with really enjoyed working in their own specific uh, specialty spaces, right? So like someone who specialized in women's mental health would really want to work and like do the psych of women course. I loved psych 101 because in my opinion, psych 101 is such a broad spread that anyone can find something that's interesting in that. So, you know, one week I'm teaching neuroscience, which is really appeasing to like, you know, really scientifically mind people. One week I'm talking about like social psychology and, you know, the, the science of persuading each other and group memberships. And another week it's like, you know, the psychology of sexuality, which of course, when you're teaching a bunch of like 18 year olds, they're like, tee -hee -hee -hee, which is always really fun. Um, I loved that course. I, uh, so I, I think as a, as a university teacher, something I really loved about that was standing in front of a room of students and talking about something that I really loved and seeing those students latch on to that one thing that was like, this is interesting to me. I may have hated the rest of this course, but this one topic really like does it for me, you know? Um, and I miss teaching. I miss it a lot. Uh, there are times where I like reach out and, and try and do even things like this that still satisfy that kind of teaching need of like getting out uh, up, answering questions and talking about something I love. Um, and then there was the, uh, the therapist bit. Now, before, is... before we go into that, I actually do have some yeah. questions about, or All right. statements Let's about go. the teaching. Um, do you, do you find that your teaching experience have like massively shaped your ability to have conversations with people in, in the game dev world? Yes, absolutely. Um, there is, I would say there is a particular, uh, skill that comes with understanding concepts well enough to be able to teach them and explain them, not just in one way, but with the specific goal of explaining it so that it makes sense to someone else. Because there's there's types of communication that we do where we just need to go up and say words and it's almost like a self-satisfying thing. But then there's the type where like your metric of success is how well they understand what you're saying and absorb it. And so, yeah, absolutely. I would say uh, learning how to be a teacher and learning how to communicate in different styles and ask questions that confirm that the people that you're talking to understand what you're talking about. Um, yeah, that's absolutely a skill that uh, teaching leveled me up in. Now, I don't have any formal teaching experience outside of um, camp counseling when I was much younger. Um, but I do find when I'm teaching people who I'm working with how to do specific things that I learn a lot about my process to work through something uh, in the meantime, because I'll, I'll think about something where I haven't even come at it at that angle before. They'll ask me a question. They'll be like, well, why don't we do it like this? Or why don't we do it like that? And my brain will be like, oh, well, yeah, that's a good point. We could do it like that. And then I've I've learned so much about things that I thought I had was was the expert. I thought I had everything down pat just because I had to try to explain it to somebody else. Um, have you ever had any moments like that? A anything specific where you're like, this is changing my this is blowing my mind because i never thought about this before when i was teaching somebody something uh yeah absolutely i'd say that happens more uh in in my current work than it did as a teacher i think because when you're a teacher there's a hierarchical thing there's like a power structure right and there aren't a lot of students that feel really comfortable going up to a teacher and like genuinely challenging them uh on something that they know or introducing these ideas it's like vulnerable to like speak up in a class about yeah. something um but Part of my job is to help people to put boundaries and limits around their ideas that help them to be uh, 
you know, measurable and, uh, you know, things that we can use to actually define the success of things. Um, so there are times when I approach products and I'll be like, okay, so like, what are these parameters we have to put around? Where do we need to measure things here? And then people will introduce these ideas that are so wild and outlandish. So like big picture that I'm like, okay, so like, I mean, I just need to scrap my entire framework that was very, you know, structured and, uh, uh, well-defined and like re-encompass this idea of like, okay, what's this like really big picture that we're going towards, right? It's always the designers that do that. The designers are always the ones that come at me with these really big grand ideas and really challenge my idea of like, what is it that we're actually trying to do for players, which I think is just amazing. Um, it's why, you know, we balance each other out. I think in all of the people that I work with, designers tend to be at the other end of the spectrum in terms of the way that they think about these problem spaces. They can break things very easily from, from what I've said. <laughs> they come at things from such a different angle where it just, it turns things upside down. Um, you know, that's great. I, I love talking to people who, who have experience teaching because it, it feels like they have, teaching is such an underserved and under, I don't, I don't know, I don't want to say it's underappreciated because I feel like a lot of people, especially these days, do have a higher appreciation for teaching, but it does feel like an underserved art and science in today's atmosphere where everyone's like, oh, we do need more teachers. We do need more people doing this. But nobody actually wants to go and sit down and do the work because it is a, it's a lot of work. It, it, it requires people skills. It requires, like you said, research skills. It requires sort of a, a ability to patience, obviously, especially in, in some atmospheres. But uh, I'm sure that would be one of the, the biggest growing experiences in, in a person's life, uh, actually sitting down and, and working through a teaching environment. So that is awesome to hear about your experiences in that. Um, I'd like to move on to the, the, what you were about to say right before I, before I really interrupted you, the therapist section, because I think this is going to be very interesting as well. Yeah, not rude at all, by the way. Please feel free to interrupt me. I get excited and I get on a roll when I talk about things. Um, so it's funny, when I, whenever I list kind of my background of things that I work in, it's always, people always stop on the therapist bit. They're like, what was that career change? Like, those seem like two wildly different things. And the funny thing is, in, in the job that I do now, I would say that a therapist is the most parallel, the most similar to it. Because, okay, so as a therapist, my job is to listen to someone tell me about their life experiences. And from that, I pull out different symptoms that I can label and identify. And from that, I create a diagnosis. I say, okay, based on these different experiences that this person's told me, this is their diagnosis. Based on that, I rely on different metrics, whether that's, again, the experiences that they're telling me or even giving them questionnaires to help validate my hypothesis. And then once I've done that, I help to create a treatment plan and uh, help that person to figure out what works best for them in terms of improving what their life looks like. And then finally, when everything is all said and done and things feel better, we work together on strategies to make sure that that can get to a sustainable state for that individual. And ideally, you know, they go off and live their life and really don't need to come see me again until some other wrench gets thrown in the plan or some other variable gets introduced to the equation. My job at Riot is to look at player experiences, either from what they're telling me in their surveys or what we're seeing in the big data are on our end of things. I look for patterns in these experiences and pull out different factors that we could call symptoms. 
And then I pull all those symptoms together and be able to identify that as a particular problem that players are experiencing. Once I do that, we come up with a treatment plan to figure out how to ameliorate that problem for our players. And then I work with the teams to figure out how it is that we can make that sustainable over time so that that way in a week, players aren't still experiencing that problem. It is remarkably similar, the work that I do. Um, and in addition to that, so much of my work is just convincing people that these are problems that we care about and trying to promote empathy. And uh, a lot of the time my work as a therapist was just convincing people that they could trust me and that I knew what I was talking about and that the uh, support that I was trying to offer was going to make their lives better. And that is essentially at Riot, stakeholder management skills. So no, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's such a great parallel. I love, I love that you're able to, to draw those, those um, similarities between the two things, because like, like you said, I would have never come up with that independently. I would never think like, Oh yeah, a therapist would be such a similar role to this job at Riot. So that's, that's really great. Um, what, okay. So for somebody who isn't familiar with, with deep level psychology, what type of therapist would you say that you were, were you a specialist? Were you a generalist? Yeah. So the, uh, oftentimes therapists tend to be defined by the population that they work with. Mm -hmm. So I was a, uh, I worked in college mental health, which essentially meant that a lot of the people that I was seeing were having some component of their life experience that was similar, that they were going to classes and that they were experiencing, you know, that pivotal point in your life that you go through. But in terms of what I saw, I saw in a single day, I could see, I hate my roommate. They annoy me so much. I need to learn how to have study skills. I'm 22 years old and on the verge of a schizophrenic psychotic break. And I'm here because three weeks ago I tried to harm myself. And now, you know, the court systems are telling me that I need therapy. Um, it was a broad, broad, broad range of the types of things that I saw. Um, but the actual, for those of you who are familiar with different approaches to therapy, typically uh, I worked within kind of a multiculturally informed interpersonal approach to therapy, which is a very long way of saying... Um, the interpersonal approach to therapy focuses a lot on relationships and it focuses a lot on things that are happening in the room when you sit down with another person that you can observe. So uh, I would often make comments like, um, I noticed that when you talk about this, you start to feel, you start to wiggle your leg or something. Tell me a little bit about how, what you're feeling right now. Or I noticed that you're getting anxious as you're telling me about this. Can you tell me more about it? Or in like the really, uh, the really spicy situations, like I notice that you're getting frustrated with me as I'm trying to help you here. Can you tell me what's going on with you? Um, so interpersonal therapy, just like the word would describe, is very focused on like what's happening in the room, the relationship and the trust between the therapist and the client, and then how those things um, kind of recapitulate in other parts of life. It's a pretty common idea in psychology, but it's really embedded in the interpersonal approach that everything we learn is adaptive. All, even the, the things that we bring into adulthood that we're like, how on earth did I learn how to do this? Because this seems like a not good life skill. Um, everything we learn, we learn because at some point in our life, it was helpful to us. And as we grow older, unless we have these really um, impactful, corrective experiences, we're going to keep doing that thing until we learn to do something different. So um, that interpersonal approach to therapy was really rooted in this idea of empathy of like, yeah, you 
do this thing, which could, you know, be you get anxious or you get depressed or you act like a total jerk to people. That's not what I would call it. But, you know, we, we all know what, what's being thought of there. Um, and then provide a lot of empathy for that experience. So that was a long winded question, but I tried to tried to keep it a little bit uh, tucked in. Did you how do you how did you separate yourself from your work? Because I know that that can be you're essentially like taking people's problems that's being offloaded onto you. And I'm, I'm sure that can be a very heavy psychological debt. How did you separate yourself from from that? Yeah. Um, so there are some folks who seem to have endless supplies of emotional energy. I was not one of those people. And so I told you before uh, that Riot was the dream for me. And so, you know, my idea was that, oh, okay, well, if I can't get into Riot, you know, um, that's all right. I'll, I'll continue going along what my CV is really catered towards, become a staff psychologist at a university counseling center. It'll be great. I distinctly remember one day I was walking back from work and it was, uh, I think it was like a Monday. And I think I'd seen seven clients that day. And I was so utterly exhausted. Um, I was working full time at that point as a therapist. And I remember my phone ringing and looking at it. And it was my best friend in the whole world calling me. And I remember thinking, God, I really hope she doesn't need me right now. And that was a defining moment in my life. Because if being good at my job meant that I was going to be less present as a friend, less present as a sister, less present as a partner, that was not an exchange that I wanted to make. So I committed to myself, I'll finish out this last year, you know, I'll, I'll work to the end of what I'm supposed to work at and finish up my degree and all that stuff. Um, but that was, I think, one of those frightening and defining moments where I realized that my backup plan was not acceptable to me. So yeah. to answer your question, um, it was a lot. I, I, was, I was good at therapy and I'll, I'll own that and feel good about that, but it, it was tearing me apart in the long term. Yeah, that that must be a very scary experience when when you realize that something that you've spent a lot of time and energy and and a good portion of your your professional life on is not something that you want to continue doing. And I I've had experiences like that before too. And it 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 can be very eye-opening and and depressing at the same time where you feel like you've lost a lot of like your the work that you've put in. So it's very good to hear that a good success story coming out of that and, and and changing gears so so and i know you said it's not the biggest change of gears but it is in terms of like a professional uh, life so yeah that's, yeah that's great i recently did a, a talk for for phd students um at a, a conference it was a virtual conference i promise i'm not out traveling and stuff um but I did this, and one of the things that I encouraged them to do, it's, it was specifically focused on, like, career changes, right? Like, what happens when I have this degree in this field, and, like, what does the world look like for me afterwards if this isn't what I want to do? And the thing that I always tell people is we are trained to cite our skills within the context in which we learned them. You know, uh, I was taught how to do diagnostic evaluations. I was taught empathetic listening. I was taught all these things that are wrapped up in this therapist language that means absolutely nothing to the world outside of therapists. But I encourage people to think about what it is that you actually learned. Because if I can kind of pull away all that therapist lingo, what I learned was critical thinking, hypothesis testing, structured problem solving, um, you know, Empathetic listening probably still applies. Um, 
but I, I encourage folks, you know, if you find yourself in that position of needing to change career paths, reorient how you think about the skills you've learned, because chances are they're not as niche as you think. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it, it it's all and that and that's like the biggest takeaway I can say from this podcast in general and all the guests we've had on um, life experience is a massively underrated skill and a massively underrated. There's so many things that can go into what you want to do professionally that's not just like you said it's not just learning exactly the jobs like there there are college classes out there where it's like oh learn how to be a computer programmer learn how to be a engineer and those can be very specific but for a lot of roles there aren't specific college classes exactly for that role so taking equivalent experience and learning how to adjust that to be where you want to go is, is like you said, it's a very important skill and it's a very important realization to make. Um, no, but that, those were great insights onto that. The, 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 I don't want to say life as a therapist, but, but the problems that can then result from dealing with that. And I think that's very, um, it's great that you shared that. Cause I think, I think it's, it's very easy to, say that life is all sunshine and roses and everything that I've done has been a huge success, but being able to um, come out and say like, Hey, this didn't work out for me and I didn't want to do it. That's yeah, that's powerful. And I like that. Um, is that was the, okay. So how many steps between that and riot were there? Cause I, I remember looking this up, but I don't yeah. remember at the time. Yeah, so I uh, had the unusual occurrence that right out of grad school, so while I was in grad school was while I was doing all of those things, I came to Riot right out of grad school. Uh, so there was pretty much that, that moment that I told you about where I was like, I can't do therapy anymore, except I have to do it for like another nine months to fill out my contract. It was only a few months later. It was actually probably like a month later that I reached out to Riot and tried to figure out when an appropriate time to apply would be based on when my contract would end. Um, and so, yeah, it was only a few months later that I ended up formally applying to Riot and uh, ended up getting the position over on the League Skins team. Okay. Um, so before we move on to the, the, the career at Riot, do you have, like, what was your favorite role of the many that you had at, at the college? And what is something that you feel like has shaped your career the most? I know you said being the therapist uh, was, was a huge drive into what you're doing today. But other than that, what would you say was like your favorite experience? Um, I think I'm someone that has a lot of different motivations for the work that I do. And I don't know if any particular one of them was my favorite. I can tell you without a doubt that being a therapist has made me a better person. I have infinitely more empathy for other people's experiences and understanding that like we all are bringing different baggage to the table. Um, I learned a lot about things like systematic oppression and the experiences of people who look really different than me. And I would not trade those experiences for the world. Um, being a teacher was fun and I loved it and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I think I learned a lot of those skills that you're talking about. Um, but when I pair that next to like, I learned how to be a good human, like it maybe dulls a little in comparison. But I think being a researcher, I love problem solving. And I loved the outreach work where I would have to take these complex problems that I'd spent months, you know, digging through endless buckets of data. And like, you have 30 seconds to explain this to someone in a way that makes sense to them. I think that was like a really fun process because being a researcher, it was a really diverse experience. And of course it taught that. me a lot of the skills. 
<laughs> I cannot condense myself into 30 seconds very well. Uh, fun fact. Some of that, you know how I told you that when I first uh, applied to Riot, they gave me some feedback. One bit of that feedback was you're too verbose. Like, get get to the point faster. And I did, and I learned how to do it, at least for the most part. I still struggle with it sometimes. It's, but at it's, least I'm aware of it. It's so funny. Um, one of the things that I struggled with growing up was I was a very shy person. I didn't talk to anyone. And I was super antisocial. And learning how to transition from that into what I am today, um, which I think I'm a fairly social person and I do like to talk now. Um, it was a weird transition and it was something that helped me so much in my professional life because um, you can be the best person in the world for a job that you're looking for. But if you can't explain to somebody, especially somebody who might not be familiar with like why that job is important and why you're good at it, um, that's, that is a really valuable skill. So never underestimate the ability to talk to people about what you're good at and what you can do. Um, and uh, like you said, maybe uh, work on trying to get it into a, a condensed format where people actually want to listen to you and not just hear you ramble on about it. <laughs> no, but that's great. So, so you started on the skins team at, at Riot. Um, the did, skins team yeah. for, for Valorant or for League of Legends? league of legends okay uh so yeah. so i worked on on league for about a year before i moved over to valorant and this was back in 2017 that would have been 2018 2018 2018 yes yeah yeah that makes sense so what type of work did you do on the skins team um, so I, that I would say over there, my work was much better described as a researcher than a strategic advisor. So I did a lot of really like in-depth research projects. Um, I did a lot of stuff on the thematics that we have over on League of Legends. So what are the types of thematics that players really enjoy engaging with? How does that differ based on region and gender and like your particular role type that you enjoy? Fun fact, people who tend to play character who, who tend to play roles like marksmen and assassins, uh, you know, those all end up varying between one another. So even our like role choices actually are tied a little bit with the types of thematics that we like to have for our skins. Um, I did a lot of that work. So that was like a huge body of research. Um, if you ever got a survey, uh, you know, that had asked about like, you know, click the words that describe the like kind of skin that you want to see for your favorite champion. That was me. Um, <laughs> In addition to that, I helped to like level up our lab systems. So we, uh, you know, would do these uh, skin labs where we would invite players to to campus and have them play these work in progress skins and get feedback from players. Um, and I helped to level up our process with that in terms of making sure we were bringing in the right types of people, asking the right types of questions, exposing them to the right, just the right amount of uh, you know time for for playing the skin. Um, that I would say describes most of the work that I did over there. Outside of direct player feedback, so surveys and labs, what informs these decision-making processes? Uh, like, what type of data are you looking at outside of, like, a survey response? Uh, on League specifically? Or on League specifically, anywhere? yeah. Well, anywhere, sure. Oh, yeah. So uh, some of the things that we would look at for skins would be, like, usage rates, um, purchase rates, uh, purchase rates among mains. Um, so, like, it's... Uh, so uh, a little bit of like a, a sneak peek that I'm very sure is okay to share. So as you know, possibly, 
we make a lot of skins for champions like Lux and Kaisa mm -hmm. and Ezreal. That's because a ton of people play those skins, right? Um, and so oftentimes, one of the factors that we use to determine whether or not that skin was successful was how many people bought it, right? However, how does that apply for champions like Ivern? We can't really look at how many people bought it because, like, there's such a small group of people that are really interested in that, that next Ivern skin. So uh, we would look at things like purchase rates among mains very specifically. So, like, for the people who play this champion, did they like it? We'd also, you know, ask for, like, a follow-up survey. Um, we would look at stickiness rates. So essentially, once you've purchased the skin, how long are you using it? Do you use it once and never touch it again? Is, does it become your new main? Uh, so yeah, there was the player labs, there are the surveys that we'd launched, there's usage rates, purchase rates, purchase rates among particular audiences, stickiness rates, all that good stuff. Yeah, I'm sure that there's, there's nobody, nobody could just think about that and come up with all the data that, that goes into it. So I love, I love data-driven analysis and, and I love that you can back up decisions about things that are done with data because it makes it, it, it makes it so much more um, definitive. Like it's very hard to counter like, Oh, this is what the data says. And I love seeing that in, in riots responses to some sort of play, some player feedback where I see people are like, Oh, why did they get rid of this game mode? Or why did they stop doing this thing? And, and usually the response that ends the discussion is like, well, people just weren't playing it. People just weren't, interested in those things so it's great to see that yeah. that so much work goes into informing that response um, well it's interesting that you use that term because we we would actually define ourselves not as being a data-driven company but a data-informed company mm -hmm. so for example with the data just just as it exists in the game we would never make an ivern skin it it doesn't make us money and we're a free-to-play game so we need money um but by being data-driven, it would be like, Ivern gets a skin once every like eight years. Um, but a data-informed company would say, okay, well, we ha take that into consideration, but how do the players feel about it? Like, Ivern mains, we're not going to leave you hanging. I know we did for a while, but like there are commitments that we have now around how long it's allowed to be before uh, you know, a, a player or a champion gets a skin because we believe in the die-hard Ivern and Orn mains, you know? Um, so yeah, that's... We would, uh, we would identify ourselves as being data-informed. And uh, yeah, I, I love that. It's, it's really encouraging when I get on Reddit, you know, I'll see a post about someone complaining about some aspect of their experience that they're unhappy with and seeing how many people come in to defend us and say like, well, actually they know what they're doing because they made this post over here and said yeah. why they did this. And it actually makes a lot of sense. I'm like, yes, like keep it up. Thank you. I promise we're not all just like terrible people trying to make your experience miserable. <laughs> the, 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 my least favorite thing ever, when, and I deal with this a lot as somebody who's like hyper-involved with communities, uh, my least favorite thing is when information is available and it isn't used. And it happens a lot when negative experiences are shared. And for, for, for a specific example, like when somebody has like a really bad experience with a champion and they're like, oh, this champion's ridiculously OP. Um, and they'll, they'll cite this like very one specific statistic that proves that they're OP. And they'll be like this, according to what they said here, this is OP. Like there's no arguing. And then either people will ignore the wider aspect of that framework that has been shared or what I enjoy when it happens when people will come in and, and actually share the context of that. And they'll be like, 
oh, and when this situation, because of these other determining factors, blah, 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 um, that's actually not true. And right. it, it's, it's oh, frustrating. Sorry. sorry, sorry. No, no, go ahead. But sorry, <laughs> I just contradicted no, myself. No. <laughs> I, I will stay silent until okay. you finish your thought. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just wanted to say it, it's, it's very uh, re- refreshing to see all of the data and all because it's it is very it's hard to to be aware of it and, and there's very few people out there who have the um the time energy and skills required who aren't working for a company um to really be able to look at the wider picture and, and be objective i would say in in these responses so it, it's always great when i see that happen and i hope that that encourages other people to maybe not take the reactionary approach when they look at something that they don't like, because it is very easy to take a reactionary approach. But um, like you said, at the end of the day, what's more likely that, that a company is full of terrible people who are trying to rip you off or that there's just a misunderstanding somewhere and maybe you're not seeing the biggest picture or maybe they're not seeing the biggest picture, but no, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. I'm, oh no, it's okay. I'm aware that when you'd mentioned that when, you know, a player points at one statistic and says this definitively proves i rolled my eyes like i i'm pretty sure my eyes almost detached from from the optic nerve um because so much of my job is countering that even among rioters right where rioters will be like well i have access to this piece of data and this says this so we should do this and my job is to essentially pull all the contextual information and be like okay well what you made is an assumption but let's look at the big picture of this and all the variables that we can have to consider um, so it's not just players who do it. And it can be frustrating when people try and demonize us because they have a very narrow view of what something looks like. It's something that we see on Valorant too, where you know players will complain that a particular gun is weak because you know I- I'm an Ares main on on Valorant. It is a uh, a basically it's a large machine gun. It's an LMG, uh, and I love that gun. And, you know, there are people who might say, oh, well, that gun is super weak because if you go up against an operator, you know, that's just going to lose every time. It's like, well, yeah, because there are certain things that we take into consideration, like what's the cost of the gun and what's like the uh, different ranges of effectiveness? Because if I'm lurking behind a corner and you round a corner from me, you know darn well I'm going to win with that Aries on top of your op. But if we're on like long C and we're like halfway across the map from one another, there's no way I'm winning that exchange. Actually, I might win that exchange because I'm really good on that Aries. But that being said, I think oftentimes people will take their own personal experiences and have a bit of a narrow view as to what that means and make these assumptions about everyone else's experiences and the way things should be based on that. When, um, you know, what I love to see is people who just kind of zoom out a little bit and think about all these other contextual factors, you know. That is such a fantastic analogy. And I think I might use that in the future because to try and follow it up with a, a less good analogy, which is probably a bad idea. Um, what I always use when I, when I make this uh, analogy is I'll, I'll talk about League of Legends because that's what I'm experienced with. And I'll, I'll say, like, in a situation where you're an assassin and you're fighting, like, a Malphite, you're a Talon, and you're going against Malphite, Malphite's going to win that matchup nine times out of ten in just, like, a 1v1 at level 18 because Malphite has 800 armor and you're a Talon with 400 AD. It's just not going to happen does that mean talon is bad no obviously because talon focuses on a different role in the game he's not trying to kill malphite so he's not trying to take down the tank and every fight his goal was to go and kill the jinx or the kaisa or the other squishy carries um like it's it's difficult 
that's like a very baseline analogy, obviously. Like anyone could look at that and be. You should diminish that analogy. It's <laughs> actually a really good one. Like there are certain roles that different things are supposed to fulfill. And when you look at them in isolation and make definitive statements about the effectiveness of that champion or that gun based on that one situation, mm -hmm. it's just a really naive approach to it. Yeah. And one that I saw recently on Reddit, um, which is feels like the home of uninformed uh takes like that not to disparage reddit because i love them but um yeah i saw something where it's like oh kaisa's win rate is this 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 should be nerfed blah 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 and then somebody I saw that same one i'm pretty sure <laughs> it was recently so yeah it probably was the same one i think somebody came in with with something that i hadn't even thought of before um where it was i think the gist of what he was saying was um 80 carry win rates are or sorry 80 carry play rates are more inflated than other roles because that area of the game doesn't get a lot of diversity in terms of uh class of character like you'll see sometimes melee bruisers are played in the bot lane but overall or sometimes mages but overall most of the champions that get played in the marksman role or in the bot lane role are marksmen um, and that's why adc play rates seem so much higher compared to other things because in the jungle you can have fighters uh ap mages tanks control whatever and in the top lane you'll have ranged uh hyper carries or whatever but in bot lane it's mostly just marksmen so uh, right and in addition to that there are plenty of marksmen that get played in other roles too you mm -hmm. know like that lucian top lane meta that i don't even know how long ago that yeah. was like <laughs> It's really common to have it, it pops back up from time to well. time. <laughs> yeah, every, every once in a while we see it. We see it there. I, um, I do love me some Lucian. So I don't yeah, mind. yeah, and that and that was something that once you, once it pointed was pointed out to me, I'm like, oh yeah, that's obvious. But I probably wouldn't come to that conclusion um, on my own because it it is very easy to fall into the trap of like, oh, so and so percentage high, that means bad. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that hopefully more people can learn to and and obviously it's not everyone's responsibility to turn to the statistics 99% of the time but at least be willing to accept the fact that the statistics might not back up your um your information that was a tangent that was a very long tangent and i'm i'm glad that we did it but getting back on track it was it was well used time <laughs> um so transitioning from the league skins team to Valorant, which of course is a much newer game than League of Legends. Uh, when did you transition? Was it before uh, Valorant launched? Because Valorant came out, oh man, it's, it's almost been about a year now, right? Uh, June of 2020 is when wow. we launched. Um, and so I had joined the team uh, back in 2019. So I was, I was there for a good chunk of time before our game launched. Um, and yeah, I was really happy on on Pi, which is, you know, the, the skins team that we had over on League. I was really loving the work that I was doing. But that opportunity came up on Valorant, and I was curious. And I used to have a mentor uh, that used to say, um, always uh, look into an interview for roles, even if you're happy in your current position, because all it'll do is inform you that you're either happy in your position and you want to stay there or it'll open up the opportunity for something that maybe you hadn't considered and i had not considered really moving over to valorant when i first had those meetings 
Um, but I ended up meeting with someone to chat about it, which led to another and led to another. And eventually I had enough meetings and I found that each meeting I had convinced me more and more that this was a team I wanted to be a part of, that they were, uh, you know, solving for problems that I was really interested in and that my career would really benefit in growing in that direction. You know, I mentioned when I worked on, on league, my job was very research oriented, running large, you know, uh, survey projects and research projects and providing those results. But the work that I would be doing over on Valorant was much more in the category of the, I help people make good decisions. I help them define their decision-making frameworks and their goals as teams and define their audiences and risks and mitigations associated with different products. It's very like product management focused, um, which I ended up really, really loving. I loved it far more than I thought I would. So um, yeah, I've been on Valorant since October of 2019, I want to say. And when I reached out in, in our pre-episode pre discussion, uh, I like to ask this question for the guests so I can make better uh, questions for talking points. I said, can you give me a few of your role responsibilities? And you, you uh, provided the most detailed list of role responsibilities that I've ever gotten, and I was so ecstatic for that. I felt like I under, underutilized them, and that is something that doesn't happen very often. Um, but... Uh, one of the things that you provided was was uh, the teams that you support at, on Valorant. And I thought this was amazing. So I want to talk a bit more about what each team does and like how you supporting them informs their decision-making processes. So let's start with the cosmetics team. What, like, what does the cosmetics team do on Valorant and how do you help them? Yeah, so any cosmetic that you see in game, whether that is a calling card, a gun buddy, a gun skin, a spray, that is what that team makes. And uh, when I first joined Valorant, I was very much embedded with that team, worked a lot with them, but have since moved into, now I am the, the insights lead for the uh, progression store and kind of cosmetic space. And I have another researcher that works with me. Um, so the kind of questions that they end up really focusing on are like, what do players want out of our skins? What are the fantasy experiences and, you know, um, yeah, what are the dreams that kind of we we can bring to life for them? Um, those are really the big ones. Uh, what types of thematics should we pursue? You know, when we're having conversations about potentially new product types, I'm very much involved in those. Uh, obviously, can't talk in any detail at all about what uh, what those chats have looked like. Um, but yeah, very much essentially like what is it that our players want from us? Um, and how is it that we create uh, kind of structures of how we work and what we produce that just make sense from a systemized version. So for example, um, one of the ideas that I introduced to the team when I joined them, which is uh, a pretty, uh, you know, a general concept that's been really helpful for them moving forward, has been the concept of uh, skins that are intentionally broad appeal and skins that are intentionally niche appeal. Now, broad appeal being, we're going to make this with the plan that most people are going to like it. Uh, niche appeal being there is a dedicated audience of people who really want this kind of thing. I think the great parallel would be the Lux skin versus the Ivern skin, right? So when I come to this team and I talk with them about these things, there are a couple of good general principles that we want to follow. Uh, you know, for example, with broad appeal skins, you don't want to put anything in there that's really polarizing or like potentially problematic for players. 
Uh, on the other hand, with a niche appeal skin, you want to take what that audience wants and execute on the best, most iconic version you possibly can of that. Because if you try and water it down and make it more broad appeal, chances are that audience that you're making it for isn't going to like it anymore because it no longer represents that fantasy. So, uh, you know, helping them to think about what we should make and how we should make it, that's a big part of the work that I did with them. Um, yeah, that would be the, the cosmetics team and the work that I do. I understand if you can't get into the specifics, obviously, but have there ever been any major surprises uh, when you're looking at decisions like that where, where the team uh, made something and you're like, this is going to appeal to this class of player and it either appealed to a much wider audience or it didn't appeal to as many people as you were imagining? We have had both of those experiences on Valorant. So we're still a very new game and still kind of learning what it is that our players want from us. We've had skins that we've made that were like, yeah, no one's, no one's going to like this. This is going to be fine. And then it ended up blowing up and everyone loved it. And then that's a really exciting moment, right? And then uh, sometimes we're like, oh, dang, I wish we'd like put more marketing in that. You know, maybe maybe more people would have seen it, that kind of thing. And then there are the ones that are like the big bets. And we're like, yeah, this tested really well in labs. People are going to love this. And then they didn't. <laughs> and that's always a Saturday. Um, but yeah, I, I can't speak on the details because then I have to share like, you know, mm -hmm. how much money things made <laughs> and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I would say that things are definitely still surprising us. So what type of, what type of um, decisions happen based on that? Like when something surprises you, how do you take that? and form that into hopefully less surprises in the future like what what's what do you look for yeah so uh sometimes it will be um issues of just lack of player interest that the you know the lab that we tested it with or the people that we checked it with maybe just weren't representative of our overall player audience so if it's like a real big you know punch in the gut we'll we'll do surveys and we'll ask players about that um sometimes it's also just a matter of uh you know timing Maybe we released something, uh, let's say, for example, we released like two back-to-back -back, like high-cost evolving Vandal skins or something like that. Like, it's going to be hard for a player to fork out a good amount of money mm -hmm. and then the next week be like, oh, well, I guess I got to buy this one too. So, you know, some of the things that we've thought about is like, okay, well, what if we like kind of spread out some of these things a little bit more? So sometimes it's a matter of like, we need to ask players and check in on them. And then sometimes we just screwed up on our end in terms of the timing or the pacing or something like that. And is that something that you can measure for? Or is that something you have to really infer from the data that you have? We kind of have to infer it. Well, I mean, there's there's some degree of work that we can do. Um, but the thing that I mentioned before about, you know, when you're in academia and doing research, you need to have Loctite methodologies with the highest confidence that you can possibly have that the hypothesis you've made is the correct one. In the industry, it's a little bit different where it's kind of like, okay, well, how much work do we need to do to be like 85% confident that that's the approach? Sometimes that's actually no work at all. That's just a some smart people sitting in a room trying to talk through a problem space. So sometimes there's data to help back it up, like when we run the surveys or things like that, uh, look at who engaged with that particular product. And then sometimes it's a, you know, it's just a bunch of people getting together and being like, yeah, I just think we kind of missed the boat on that one and then decide not to do that again in the future. Okay, that's awesome. Thank you for the insight. That's, that was great. Um, so the pro progression team, and, and I have a list yeah. of, Four, and I hope I didn't miss any, but the, the progression team. Nope, the four teams. You got it. Awesome. Uh, what do they yeah, do? Yeah, so the progression team uh, works on the progression systems in the game. So uh, right now, that is 
pretty much the uh, battle pass, the character contracts or the agent contracts, and the missions and XP gain that players get in our game. Um, so uh, some of that work, um, some of the problems that they end up facing is what does satisfaction with the battle pass look like? What does engagement with the battle pass look like? How many players are buying into it? How many players are, you know, uh, how far are they getting in the paid track or the free track? Um, there was some early work that I did in labs that helped to identify, you know, how many games does a player have to play before they unlock their first free agent? Things like that. So um, they're working on all kinds of cool stuff, and I'm I'm so excited for what they're going to be bringing to the table. Same with same with all the teams I support. Honestly, we're still such a new game that there's so much opportunity for newness that we really I didn't really get to participate in on League because so much of that ecosystem was already pretty well established. Um, yeah. It feels like you yeah, can build. It feels like you can build something rather than adjust it, which I think yeah, uh, it must be a very... Build something as opposed to build on something. Yeah, um, I'm sure that must be an awesome experience. Um, something that I'm realizing now is a lot of these teams probably work very closely with each other. Um, yes. Especially, well, so, especially the next team. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the other team that I support is the store team. Uh, so, you know, their interests are everything from... Uh, what is the format of the store? How is it laid out? Does it make sense to players? You know, before our launch, I did some um, kind of like UX testing uh, and, you know, did labs with people and asked about like, hey, if you wanted to purchase this item, how do you think you'd do that? You know, doing navigability and clarity testing. Um, they're also the team that handles some of the pricing components. So some of the pricing sentiment on Valorant is stuff that I've been able to work with. And um, yeah, very much so. So we actually have like a sync every week where the leads from the store team, the progressions team, and the uh, the cosmetics team all get together and chat because essentially everything that they do somehow touches one of those other teams. Yeah. And that is, I'm sure, a blessing and a curse for something like that. A blessing because it's great to have so much insight and feedback into all of these different aspects of the game but it's also very hard to get a lot of people together to agree on something sometimes i mean obviously i have no insight onto what happens at, at Valorant, but i can imagine the more people involved in a project the harder it is to come to a sort of consensus about certain uh, decisions yeah i work with really amicable people and people who are really flexible and, and really down to collaborate. Honestly, I think the hardest part is scheduling <laughs> because getting those people all in a room at the same time consistently is not always easy. Um, so yeah, I, I think that the more people you involve, the more opportunities there are to drop the ball, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is if you're handing something back and forth, eventually the ball drops, but, um, in general, like they're amazing people to work with. Okay. This is the last one. And I thought this was the most interesting by far. Yeah. The social and player dynamics team. So for somebody who may not be familiar with this, what does this team actually look at and what do they do? So they handle all of the social features in the game, which would include things like your friends list and inviting people to parties and adding those little notes that give you the hint when you've forgotten who someone is or they've changed their name, all that really technical stuff. Um, but also we deal with all things related to player behavior which is a spicy one. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't do that work alone. We also partner with like central riot teams who do that work for, you know, all across riots games. Um, but you know, that is when we enter into the world of people who like to AFK and people who like to friendly fire and people who seem to think that it's okay to verbally harass other players. So that is definitely an interest, interesting space to work in. Um, and one that I'm obviously really passionate about given my history of research in 
social behavior in video games. Yeah, that that seems like a like a shoe in um for your expertise. Where do you find Obviously there's there's a pro- a big problem in all online games with people online harassment, online like just vitriol um like you said AFKing and and friendly firing. Do you do you have any baseline uh, I don't want to be too general. Do you have any understandings on like why this behavior happens and like what can be done to to curb it by other people? Oh, absolutely. So um, I think something that's also important to call out is that it's not every online game. For example, tell me, when was the last time you heard about someone getting harassed while playing Animal Crossing online? <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I right? didn't think about that. So I think the thing, and I think that games like League and games like Valorant and games like CSGO and all of these uh, deeply competitive games tend to be uh, the hub of a lot of this behavior Um, because uh, think about the skills that tend to get highlighted and the circumstances which we tend to put players under. Um, I don't know if you've ever played Valorant, but chances are if you've played, yeah, if you've played, you've gotten really sweaty and tense at, at some point, right? And people don't tend to think through things very clearly when they're in, you know, when their uh, sympathetic nervous system is activated, their cortisol is through the roof, all these things being kind of like stressful indicators, right? Now, the thing is that the human body is uh, very old in a sense of how our biology works. And we might think that we're like way better off than our, you know, Neanderthal ancestors, but really our bodies work very similarly. So when you're under the extreme stress of being in a 1v4 trying to defend the spike while, you know, Brimstone is alting you and Reyna just used her alt and Sova just launched his arrow in, like your body going into that stress response doesn't know the difference between that and a bear chasing you. So you end up not using your, uh, you know, decision-making, you know, executive functioning prefrontal cortex work as much as you should. Uh, You don't stop and think about how are my actions going to impact those around me? Your goal is to, I need to accomplish the thing that I need to accomplish and get this done. That doesn't happen in games like Animal Crossing where we're like, I'm going to nurture my plants and go talk to this cute little animal creature, right? Um, So... I think that games like that tend any game that uh, promotes heavy competition, heavy skill, heavy stress responses is going to have a harder time with that kind of behavior than other games will. Now, all that being said, um, I think that uh, a lot of people, and this is just a comment on our society, right? A lot of people are not taught how to effectively handle difficult emotions like disappointment that they didn't perform well in the previous round or frustration and anger towards other players and sadness that their, you know, inability to perform is now impacting my ability to rank up. So when we take all those things into consideration, we're taking people who aren't always skilled in emotional regulation and management, putting them into a highly competitive, highly stressful environment and asking them to be nice to one another. We're we're really setting them up for failure in that sense. So, some of the things that that come to mind for me um, when I think about this space is skills in de-escalation. So um, when someone encounters that stress and then hears someone else say like, why are you being such a jerk? That's an escalation. That is now that person feels the way that they were feeling and now has to defend themselves. 
a de-escalation strategy would be, I'm so sorry that happened. That must've been so frustrating. Or like, hey, I, I, that was a rough round, but we've got this next time, right? So one of the things that I would love to see in this world would be de-escalation strategies. And, uh, oh, I realized I didn't finish my previous point. So I'm just gonna just rewind that a little bit. Um, the thing that makes it worse online are two different things uh, called uh, de-individuation anonymity and, um, oh, goodness, what's that other one? Oh, look I at me, I don't know. On it. <laughs> I'm blanking on it. But essentially, uh, when people are online, uh, they are more anonymous. Uh, and they also uh, do not feel as much of a sense of personal responsibility over the people around them. Bystander uh, this effect. Is a Bystander effect is definitely one of the ones that comes to mind. Okay. Um, so essentially, people are just much less likely to act pro-socially and much more likely to act anti-socially online. It's just a, a human nature that's been documented for the past like three decades. So when you combine all those things with that, you're going to end up getting a lot of really um, a lot of people who aren't exhibiting the best behaviors that we'd like to see. Um, but the things that come to mind, like I said, are uh, the bystander effect. So fun fact, the most effective intervention for bullying behavior is the bystander effect. Having someone else who's not involved in the situation say, hey, that's that's not cool. Um, that's why that's what I always encourage when I'm talking to players and they're like, what can I do to help make this environment better? If someone is harassing someone else, just step in and be like, no, nah, that's that's not what we do here. Um, once we can establish norms where harassing other people isn't cool and isn't acceptable in our game, it'll start to self-correct. It's just going to take a really long time because FPS games have been around for a really long time, and yeah. that's a very well-established norm. I've been talking about this a lot, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a breather and a sip of water. Um, I'm going to ramble for a little bit to give you a chance to take a breather and a sip of water. Um, and then I'd love to hear your response because this is, obviously this is a very difficult question a very difficult situation um what level of responsibility do you think platforms like a, a games company have to shape these environments um so to like you said when you're setting not setting up people for success how do you set up people for success in a situation like this um what level of uh is there a is there a any situation where you want to compromise something on something else to improve another aspect of the game? And uh, do you think we're heading in a positive direction or do you think things are getting worse before they're going to get better? And those are three different questions. So if you want to take yeah. one and we'll reiterate again, we can go to that. Yeah. So I want to be clear on this. This is not, uh, I, I, I will not be speaking on like on behalf of Riot or the mm -hmm. Valorant team. I'm really not speaking on behalf of them for any of this, but I would say particularly for this, this is coming from my own heart, my own experience as a, a lifelong gamer and someone who um, works in game dev now. Mm -hmm. I believe that as a developer who works in the social space, it is absolutely my responsibility to protect vulnerable populations that is where like absolutely hard hard yes so uh making sure that people have muting features making sure that we have effective penalty systems that for the truly egregious offenders in our community they don't have an opportunity to treat people like that um so when it comes to like do, is it your job to protect people from truly awful things yes absolutely uh am i i Am I responsible for teaching people how to effectively manage emotions? 
I don't think that that's the thing that should determine whether or not I'm doing a good job. But yeah, that's what I aspire to do. I would love to. So I actually, funny enough, wrote a, wrote a chapter in a book about this, that the experiences that we have in gaming impact the way that we behave in real life. The changes that we experience to our disposition and personality in gaming change the way that we treat people out in the non-virtual world. So yes, there are circumstances that we can create to help curb those really harassment, you know, egregious, disruptive behaviors. Um, and in a very aspirational sense, I would love to think that I'm working towards making the world a better place and making people kinder towards each other. But that is a very, very uphill battle to climb. Um, so I wouldn't consider that so much like that is like the definition of me doing a good job as much as, as it is like that's an aspiration that I really want to work towards. Mm -hmm. And I know there were other questions in there, but I kind of forgot about them as I was ex explaining those other two. <laughs> that was 100% my fault. I shouldn't have uh, lumped in three at a time. So <laughs> That's okay. So I think one of the things that I'm, and this is not a question that I asked, but I'd like to go on this tangent before we move on to a different question. Um, not speaking for right, obviously. How do you think is an effective way to police games with voice chat? Because obviously in text chat, we see it's a lot easier to go through and you have a history of going through and being like, Hey, this is wrong and we can act on this uh, for voice chat. Obviously it's a lot harder to get meaningful evidence on harassment and, and, and negativity. Um, I'm sure that was a conscious decision made in a game like Valorant where, where the balance was, was decided upon. Um, I don't know. This might be, this might be too in depth of a question, and, and I'm sorry if this puts you in a, a weird position. But obviously, oh, if you don't okay. want to answer, go ahead. But is there ever? I mean, I, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I I feel comfortable talking around the difficult NDA stuff, um, mm -hmm. and I'll stop where where it's appropriate. Um, I think it is a really difficult space. Um, because so something to keep in mind is that when it comes to penalty systems and getting feedback. We're not only looking to like yeet the bad eggs out of our game, right? Like we're trying to teach people that like that thing you did is wrong. And the more time that passes between the infraction that occurs and the consequences of that, the less effective it is at people actually learning, oh, I actually can't do that thing because it becomes so removed from it, which in real terms would mean we need to have live voice moderation, which tracks everything that you say and acts on it as soon as it hears something bad. That is extraordinarily difficult to implement, not just from a technical perspective, but a culturally sensitive perspective, as well as a legal perspective, because there is a whole lot of legal tape around that process. Mm -hmm. So we are absolutely working on systems that can help to improve the voice experience for our players. Um, and I'm fully invested in that. Um, that being said, it is no secret that that is a very difficult space to navigate. And so I, I do believe that we are accountable for making sure that people aren't called racial slurs in their games, aren't harassed for their identities, even like bullying people in a separate from like protected classes thing is just like not something we want to have in our game. It just becomes really difficult when we actually want to try and you know, we don't want to take the approach where it's like, oh, well, if that person gets reported enough, then they'll just get kicked out of the game because 
people abuse those systems. Mm -hmm. We see many instances of people getting reported when they've done nothing wrong just because they sounded like a particular group of people, you know, sounded like a kid or sounded like a female or sounded like a racial group. And people suddenly decided, I don't like you. I'm going to report you in this game. So um, it's it's a space that keeps keeps me up at night, not in a sense of stress, but in a sense of like, how can how can we do something about yeah. this? Um, but it's a tough one to tackle. Definitely, it's definitely a, a tough situation. And it's something where whenever I see people push for uh, uh, open voice chat in a game like League of Legends, and I, every time I see that, I, I'm like, I understand the, I understand the, the drive and the, the want for something like that. But I also understand that I think that this would do more harm than good, especially on a, like, you'll get maybe a, a competitive advantage in, in some games, but you also, drive a lot more people away and you'll it, it opens up people a lot more for harassment in a situation where they might not be harassed because like you said they it's harder to identify somebody based on what they write versus how they talk um so yeah right. that's uh, it's obviously must be a very difficult decision to balance that but whenever somebody drives for for voice chat in, in a game like league i'm always just like eh, maybe just understand why that doesn't exist yet and why they're so yeah, hesitant to there, are up, there are upsides and downsides you know i the reason i play valorant and people laugh at me when i say this is because i love team coordinated strategy play my my the, my least favorite experience in valorant is when i like log into a game and i say like what's up friends and no one's using their mics i hate it because that's not the peak valorant experience for me um i totally agree with you though i think there's a, a reason that league doesn't have open voice um you know, and I, the way that I see it, you know, is that like the work that we're doing is aspirational, but like players by all means hold us accountable to that. You know, um, if we're trying to make it better, hold us to that, you yeah. know, I think, yeah. And we're I hope doing I, our best. I, I, I went off on a tangent. I'm sure I forgot all of my questions that I was going to ask, but I think the one that I'm interested to hear your take on is, do you think things are getting better or do you think, do you think it's, it's gotten it might be, and I'll, I'll qualify this with my personal experience, it might just be because I've been exposed to a lot more of this culture more recently than I used to be, but it does seem like we have gone downhill in certain respects. Obviously, we've gone uphill in, in some, but I feel like m the culture in general has gone downhill in certain respects. I think it like you said, it, it kind of depends on how it is that we're defining better and worse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I get to get visibility on a lot of things that are happening on, you know, not just with Riot and with Valorant, but with things like the Fair Play Alliance, with, you know, dedicated groups of brilliant individuals who are all working together to try and make this space better. And from that perspective, heck yeah, things are getting better. That being said, 2020 was a year, man. And like there were tensions were high everywhere and people, you know, found all new different ways to, to not just harass, but like demonize other groups of people. And we saw that in our game, you know, there were, there were games where I would log into Valorant and see people, you know, talking about black lives matter, talking about the president, talking about the various, you know, parties in the U S government. And like, from that perspective, yeah, it got a lot worse. I didn't used to have to see those things in my games. But I think that, you know, video games are a social ground. They are a, an avenue by which we express ourselves in the context of our lives. 
and 2020 was a year. <laughs> so I think that, you know, I saw some of those things get worse, but I think it's less like the, the whole system is getting worse and everything's going downhill and it's more just reflective of what our circumstances are. So I don't know if I have a good answer for that question. I think it gets better in some ways and worse in others. Well, I hope, I hope in the future we can see a more um, positive, uh, an easier answer to that question where it's getting better. But only time will tell, and I, I hope that we can look back at this moment and, and, and realize that things did get a lot better from, from back now. But, I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that was a great response to the the what does the player and social dynamics team do and and how they're affecting the game as a whole. Um, I'm sort of lost. Okay, here we go. Um, we've talked a lot about this actually already, so I think we've already answered this question. But can you exhibit me like an, a, a specific example about like what a strategic advisor does for the dev team? Oh gosh, yeah. Um, so maybe I can give you an example of of one. Um, and it's it's kind of hard because like the things that are salient to me right now are things we're actively working on. <laughs> Can't really talk about what we're actively working on. Um, but maybe yeah, I think like a great example would be um, you know the store team is putting together their store and they're like, we made this store and we're super stoked about it. And I'm like, great what do you want this store to accomplish? And they're like, we want it to sell things. I'm like, great, okay. Well, what, do you, what needs to happen in order for us to sell things? It's like, oh, okay, well, we need to have content to sell. Great, all right. We need to have players be able to figure out how to find things. We need players to be able to recognize where in the client they're supposed to buy currency. We're supposed to be able to get players to realize where they can equip something. And so I'm there as a part of these conversations that help the team to define, okay, well, what does good look like? You're telling me that we're shipping a store, but I'm working with you to figure out how we can do that in the best way possible. And then this is a great example because I get to pair that with what I do as a researcher, which is I sit down with players and I, you know, put them in the store and I say, great. Now let's imagine you wanted to buy this thing. How do you think you might do that? Okay, let's say you wanted to equip it. And then they're like, yeah, well, you know, now after I bought it, I don't want to have to go all the way back to my collections page to equip it. I want to be able to buy it and then equip it right there. Hence why we have an equip button right after you buy it. That was one of the pieces of feedback that we got from players. So, um, yeah, I would say that in that example, we end up talking about like a team wants to do a thing. We prioritize. It's important because we're a free-to-play game and we need to sell things. And then I kind of work with them to determine what those uh, goals look like. And then uh, after we ended up launching the game, we asked players questions around, like, it's clear to me how to purchase something. And so we ended up getting that feedback from players. Like, yeah, we did a good job. People are buying things and players are telling us that it's clear how to do it. So well, that's great. That's a, that's a perfect example. And I, I hope that makes it clear for everyone watching or listening. Um, do okay so this is a difficult question as well and i understand that there's no great answer to this but do disconnects happen and where do they happen from greater team vision and individuals so like if somebody's specifically working on something and they're like yes this is how it needs to be done this needs to happen this way um how does that disconnect happen between like you stepping in and saying okay this isn't going to work out this we need to change something about this yeah, absolutely. I would say the best example that we have of that is when people have pet projects, things that they decided, whether it was themselves 
or with a few other devs when they're, you know, sitting and chatting about something and they get really passionate about this one idea for this one project that they really want to do. And then they end up doing all the design documentation. They don't loop in folks like me early enough. Um, and I say folks like me because I'm not the only strategic advisor on Valorant. I have an amazing team of people who all work with different parts of the organization. But what they do is they end up really getting deeply committed to an idea of something before even asking, is this the right thing that we need anyway? Um, I'm trying to come up with like an example uh, that maybe is like a real world example of something. So I don't have to like talk specifically about what we do on Valorant. Um, so like, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe an example would be, you know, you really want a dog because you, I don't know, want to be more in, you're bored throughout the day and you like want an animal, right? And you get it in your mind and you decide, you do all the research and you decide that this is the type of dog you want and it's going to be this name and you found a breeder that's nearby and you're all excited. And so you go to your friend, your partner, your roommate or whatever and say like, I want this dog and look at all the different reasons that having a dog would be great and it's going to be the greatest thing ever. And then if your roommate is someone who does what I do in my job, your roommate's like, okay, well, you told me all the reasons that are great to have a dog, but like, why do you want a dog in, a first, in the first place? And you circle that conversation over and over again until you get to that core of, I'm bored. And you say, okay, is getting a dog really the best solve for being bored? Like, I get that that's a wonderful idea. I want to validate that that's a great idea. But is it really the best possible idea here? So that's, I would say, the biggest case where disconnects happen, where people will get so excited about a project and they'll want so badly to push it through and ship it to players. And that's when my job can like kind of be a little rough because, you know, I have to not just I, I believe in, you know, I, I myself and other people in strategic advisory have the power to be like, nope, hard no. You don't get my stamp of approval. This doesn't get to go. But no one ever wants to rely on that. That's how you build bad relationships with your stakeholders. So it ends up becoming a really delicate balance of like validating that their idea is a great one, but maybe now is not the time for that. Maybe there are other cool opportunities that they can pursue instead. That's probably, I'd say, the best example of that disconnect happening. That was such a great example because that hit really close to home for me. When I lived in, <laughs> in Los Angeles, uh, I lived with a, 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 another person. And I was like, I want to get a cat. I, I, I've always wanted a cat since I've been a kid. My parents were allergic, so I was never able to get one. I want to get a cat. And um, he literally said, like, why do you want a cat? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I mean, I just I've always wanted a cat. And he's like, well, I'll ask, but I don't think we're allowed to get a cat. And I think he, um, I think we were allowed to get a cat, but I think he just didn't want me to get a cat. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, the landlord said uh, no cat, so all right, sorry. <laughs> Oh yeah, but, he wrote it on this piece of paper, like written in scribble. You know? No cats. It's like written at the bottom of the lease with a crayon. Um, <laughs> no, but yeah, it, it's that that is that was a perfect example. So thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. And second to last question, or at least getting near the end. Um, surveys and player labs. So these are always interesting topics to me because I feel like this is one of the few situations where a player feels like they have input into the decision-making process at, at a company like Riot. So what is something like somebody probably doesn't know if they, if they aren't on the outside of this process about like surveys and player labs? Ooh, let's see. So I'd say probably the biggest one is that there is a reason you are getting that survey. There are so many people who reach out to me and they're like, well, 
how can I get these surveys? Can you send the link to me? Or how do I get in Player Labs? We have inclusion criteria for it, you know, and it totally depends, you know, on which team is running the survey. Did you play competitive within this particular point in time? Are you a non-monetizer or a monetizer? Do you use this particular agent more often than not? Um, so, you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, I really want to answer this survey. There tend to be pretty, pretty rigid inclusion criteria that we have for who gets those invitations to those player labs and, uh, who gets those surveys. Whenever I ran a lot of player labs, I always found it really fun, especially when I was doing the, uh, the skins player labs for, uh, Pi. I would love to like, as people are filtering into the room back in a world when we could all be in the same room at the same time, uh, I would love to ask like, all right, everyone, while you're getting settled. You all have something in common. Why don't you figure out what that is? And it was so much fun because I just watched them. And then there were a lot of times where they'd all be like, wait a minute, we're all Leona mains. And then they're like, oh, skin lab for Leona. So it was like, it was a really fun process. So, so um, wait, but I'd I, say that's like a big not, not to interrupt you because this is, that's yeah. amazing. How do you, how do you approach people for a player lab without telling them what it is before they come in? You just say like, hey, we have something new that we think that you'll be interested in. <laughs> Come on down. Yep. So we'll let you know like, hey, this is, we want you to test stuff. We'll tell you which game it is, you know, uh, we'll say for League. And really, that's it. We're like, you have a this much time commitment. And they sign an NDA that says they're not going to share anything. But other than that, they could be coming in for balance changes. They could be coming in for a new skin. They could be coming in for a new champion. They could be coming in for a new map. They could be coming in for a new game mode. Really, like anything. That's great. I didn't. I didn't know yeah. that. that. That's that's fascinating. Do you yeah, think do we you don't think, tell people what they're coming in for? What is the reasoning behind that? Is it is it? I don't know. I can't think of a reason why that would be the case. So uh, we don't want people to, uh, one, spoil Hi. what's happening. This is my cat. <laughs> Hello. Uh, so we don't want people to spoil what's happening. So we, if, they, if we tell them you're coming in for a new champion, we don't want people like, oh, my God, there's a new champion coming out. Like, of course, everyone already <laughs> knows that. But I think there are other circumstances. Like, for example, the massive item rework mm -hmm. that certainly got tested. Uh, we don't want people to know that necessarily in advance. We also don't want them to, like, do any additional activities or research to try and prepare, which people often do with really good intentions. But we don't want them to come in with anything other than their standard experience of having played the game. Um, a lot of times when people know what's happening, they're going to, they like try and recruit their friends cause they're like, Oh, but my friend is also a Leon, Leona main and can they come in too? And so we don't, we don't like for them to know in advance what they're coming in for. Also again, leak risks, I think yeah. is a big important one. That makes so, a lot yeah. of sense. Um, that definitely is a good reason. Um, this is something that I like to confirm because I don't know if this is true, but I think it's true. Um, when a survey goes out and it's like. I see this a lot on, on online where people are like, oh, I got this survey and it mentions um, so-and-so, like a new skin for this champion or a new game mode or something. Um, a lot of times people like to use that as like, oh, Riot's going to be working on this new game mode or Riot's uh, looking at this. Are there, is it possible that there are red herrings in these where it's just like you're just putting in totally random yes. stuff that you have no plans just to... There is yeah, there is a term we have for that. It's called obfuscation, which mm -hmm. is essentially like, okay, so sometimes it's there to genuinely figure out if people are feeling something. 
sometimes it's there because we're asking you about 17 different things and one of them is one we're really considering. Sometimes we end up randomizing who gets to see what. So some people see things that are red herrings and some people don't. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we ask you about things that we don't mean to put into the game because you know if we were to ask you only a survey about this one thing that we don't want you to know about. Usually we try and find other methods to get player information on things like that because like obfuscation, it's it's effective, but it doesn't really feel good for the player because then they're like, oh, I got really excited about a thing and yeah. now it's not coming to fruition. And we, we do keep those things in mind when it comes to surveys, so. That's definitely something that I've been thinking about a lot because I've gotten surveys where it's like, would you play this game mode that has only this type of champion or something like that? And I'm like, oh, that would be a lot of fun. And then I have to reevaluate my my um, expectations. I'm like, oh, there's a chance that that's just something that we put in there. Um, but no, that, right. that's interesting. And I, and I think there's also something to note that the the face validity of a question, what you think it's asking you, we can also get other data other than directly what you're answering. So, for example, if we're wondering if we should, I don't know, introduce, I don't know, I'm trying to think like. <laughs> of a, an example, it's kind of hard to, but essentially what we could do is ask like the opposite of what we're thinking. And if we see like a, a ton of interest in that, it's like, oh, okay, well maybe the opposite of that might not be the greatest. So even if it's us asking something that isn't coming to fruition, it's not like totally just there as a red herring. We're just <laughs> getting information from it that maybe you wouldn't expect. I'm sure that's, that's another aspect of why um, all your experience in psychology may be important for something like that it, it, it's easier to come up with uh questions that aren't just would you play this would you buy this <laughs> um yeah with, it's, with that experience yeah it's, it's interesting seeing folks who you know get into this role and don't have a ton of like survey writing experience um because i think that's one of the skill sets i take for granted like i don't really think about that much as being like a very honed skill um but it is a skill to write effective surveys so i'm glad that's something i get to bring to the table <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, any any standout stories from either the player labs or the surveys that stick out in your mind where you're like, oh, that's funny? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think survey open-ended responses are always hilarious. You know, people will put in memes. I've had people who, like, wrote in quotes from Fifty Shades of Grey just because they felt like it. Like, that's just what they typed in was, like, a paragraph's worth of that book. And I'm like, my life could have gone without that. But thanks. Um, funny things to happen in labs. Um, I mean, there are always different characters in labs. I always really enjoy like seeing the group dynamics of a group discussion and see the people who like clearly need to have an opinion on everything or like clearly just love the sound of their own voice. But I'd say the ones that come to mind as being particularly funny were, uh, are, are people who try and flirt with the researchers. Like that's just not. That's not an effective way of picking oh, up no. people. I also had an instance where someone was uh, very much on drugs when they came. Like, very, very much on drugs. Um, and so it's kind of like, all right, so we're like, we're pretty sure this is fine, but also we might just need to, like, nullify <laughs> that person's Shred their responses. results at the end. Because <laughs> they're, like, they're, like, in the group discussion, you know, and we're all, like, sitting around the circle, just kind of, like, chatting. And they just kind of, like, get up and start wandering around the room and just looking around. And we're like, all right, I'm going to ask you to ignore that individual while I continue to ask you about your experience of playing this game. So... Wow. Yeah, that must have been <laughs> Yeah, fun. those are, those, those, like, top two definitely come to mind. Um so as, as some funny instances 
are, and this is something, are Riot accounts exempt from surveys? I don't think they are because I, I think I've seen people at Riot get surveys, right? Um, it depends. Uh, so there is a, also a difference between a Riot email getting a survey and then the PFT mm -hmm. popping up. So PFT yeah. is our player feedback tool. It's that little thing that pops up whenever you log into the client that's like, give us your feedback. As far as I know, I believe we are disqualified from receiving emails mm -hmm. with surveys, but we, we can get PFTs. Uh, so I have gotten PFTs before. Um, the only reason, I the only reason why that. I say that is because I think I, I, this could be me misremembering something, but I think I've heard stories of people who run surveys getting like notes from, from other people who work at Riot who are like, hi. <laughs> They're just like, they just use the survey as a tool to say like, hey, what's up? <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, I've gotten a survey from one of my colleagues or PFT. And then in like the final questions where it's like, do you have any other feedback for us? I'm like, yeah, on the third page in this one, you asked a double barreled question. And I feel like that's going to invalidate the results of that question. <laughs> it's snarky, but it's fun because then they read that and they're like, what freaking researcher like did this? <laughs> no, that's great. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I love I love stuff like that. Whenever I used to I used to know somebody who was on the, the researching team um, and whenever I got responses it probably wasn't even surveys that they put out but whenever i got responses or surveys i would always put like in the end like say hi to so and so for me <laughs> i That's thought that'd sweet. be fun um no but this this is great those, those were some great uh examples and and interesting <laughs> stories from the player labs this is the last yeah. thing that i want to talk about because uh, right. we've been running for a bit now but this is a great question i think um you mentioned that you actually mentor people other other research associates at riot what are some goals that you set for yourself and the people that you mentor? Wow, that is a great question. Um, so I think the the goals for uh, them really depend on what they're coming to the table with. So for example, I mentor someone who uh, has a background in analytics but needs to do survey work. So a lot of my mentoring focuses a lot on like the craft of a survey and like how to effectively, uh, you know, write those up and administer them to our players. Uh, there's another person that I mentor that, um, you know, has a ton of different asks that come to them from the team and they work pretty solo. So I work with them about like effective prioritization and stakeholder management and, and you know, improving in those skills of like setting up proper expectations. I think probably the biggest goal that I have for myself uh, when I mentor other people is, um, actually I'll, I'll say two of them. I think one of them is ensuring that the method that I'm giving them is what they actually need. So sometimes I'll ask, you know, like, okay, do you need me to give you an answer to this question or do you need me to help you come to the answer to this question? Because nothing is more frustrating when someone just wants a direct answer and you have someone that's like, now tell me how you like got to that question. It's like, no, I just need to know if this is like the right scale to use for this question. So I always try and be really thoughtful about like, are they looking to level up in this? Are they looking to, you know, um, break down the problem space themselves with me as a facilitator of that process, or are they just looking for an answer? Um, I think that's a, an important one. And I think the the second one is thinking about it less as like an ad hoc meeting, right? Like they come to me with this question and I help them answer it and think about it more as a long-term relationship in terms of how do I make sure that they are continuing to grow in this area 
following up with the things that they've been working on. You know, if I've been working with them on, you know, the survey craft, the next time they send me a survey, are they making the same mistakes that they made last time? Um, because part of a job of a mentor is to be kind of an additional set of eyes and ears for that person's growth for their manager. So then I can go to their manager and be like, hey, this person like really leveled up in this skill and it's really good to see. And, you know, because it's not always easy to get that visibility for someone's manager. So that's, um, yeah, I think those are some things that I'm trying to work on as I'm mentoring other folks at Riot. That's awesome. And I hope that hopefully gives some insight into anyone out there who's listening or watching who maybe on either side of that relationship, the mentor, mentee, and hopefully that can give you some insight on, on what to set goals for and like where, where you should try to improve. But um, let's, let's wrap things up with the, the main takeaways. So this is a new section that I'm, I'm trying to do just for a, if somebody may have zoned out during the show, um, they can come to this and be like, Oh, this is what I should take away from this. So uh, what are some skills and habits to focus on that you recommend to people wanting a similar role? Um, let's see. I would say absolutely uh, good structured problem solving and being able to break down spaces into manageable and measurable parts. That's like a big skill. Um, stakeholder management. Learn how to talk to people about what they need, figure out what they need from you, and be able to communicate your ability to meet those needs, whether it's above and beyond, or you're going to have to disappoint them in some way. Um, and then I like things in groups of three, so I'm going to find a third one here. Um, I would say adaptability and contextual awareness. Um, it is very rare that the perfect execution of what you're trying to do is actually going to be implementable uh, and something that you can execute on. So think about like, what are the different ways that different circumstances might tweak how I want to approach this? And how can I tweak that approach and still get what I really need out of it? Um, yeah, three, three important skills, I'd say. That's great. Um, what is something that you wish you'd known when you were back in college? Ooh. Um, seems like also a deeply philosophical question. <laughs> uh, let's see. There is no shame in not doing it perfectly and i think that when we try to protect our egos from the pain of i didn't do this right we lose our ability to learn from that experience and we end up beating ourselves up way too much so remember that failure is a natural part of the experience and if you never fail that means you never have room to grow and do you really never want to grow ever again so i'd say that's that was that applied to a lot of areas in life for college me. So, <laughs> so yeah. in a hypothetical world where Riot Games doesn't exist and there's no League of Legends or Valorant, I know that would be a very sad place, but what would your dream job be? Um, probably a traveling writer. I love to write. I love to travel. Like, I don't know if any of you have ever read that book, Eat, Pray, Love. It's not the movie. They're very different. But that concept of like, okay, so I'm just going to spend like four months in Italy and four months in Bali and just like write a book about that experience. Count me in. That is my dream. And lastly, who are some people that personally inspire and motivate you to be a better person and better at what you do? 
Oh, I love that question. Um, none of them are like public figures, you know, so this isn't something I think that, that people would be able to be like, oh yeah, I totally agree. Um, so my, these are going to sound really cheesy. I'm so sorry. Um, my husband is a wonderful person and he has just kind of boundless empathy and kindness in his heart. And he, uh, just always seems to find like the fun and joy and entertainment in life. And, uh, I think that sometimes my job utilizes the left side of my brain a little bit too much. And so he's often the person to remind me how important it is to like laugh in a day and have a good time and like nothing beats a good old poop joke in his book. So, you know, I gotta love that. Um, my older brother, I mentioned to you that he's my best friend in the whole world. I think I mentioned that at some point in our earlier chat. Um, and he is uh, one of those people that is just constantly looking for growth and constantly looking to connect with others and share the gifts that he has with the world with other people. Um, he is, I genuinely think, one of the greatest humans on this earth. And so my brother's definitely on that list. Um, yeah, those are those are two that immediately come to mind. Thank you so much for sharing. And my Again, cat, Rin. Hold and up. your cat. And my cat, Rin. She inspires me for greatness every oh, day. Oh, my goodness. How majestic. Yeah, she's very majestic. So <laughs> She's probably sick you, of man. you, sick of you working all day. Um, yes. Thank you again. This was, this was, without a doubt, one of the best shows we've done so far. Thank so you. So I wanted to thank I'm, you for, for, no, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I, I'm just so grateful you asked me to be on. This is really cool. And I, I love not only getting to talk about the work that I do, but like, hear about your experiences and provide hopefully some insight, <laughs> insights, some insights to your viewers and, and helping them be able to find like, you know, the career that they're passionate about. So thank you. This was really enjoyable for me. Definitely. Um, I don't know if you're really, really into this, but do you have anything that you want to plug? I don't know. I mean, I don't really have a personal brand. I don't really do the cosplay thing as much anymore, except for my own enjoyment. Um, I mean, if you feel like following me on Twitter, you know, you've got the the handle there, but that's not an obligatory thing. I mostly post about cats and adulting with occasional references to the games that I work on. Um, but no, I think if there's anything that I can plug, it's like reach out if you, you know, reach out to people, not just me, but other folks that if you need some sense of guidance and some sense of help, um, there are a lot of people out there in the world who are willing to help out and provide advice and feedback on things. So that's my plug. Reach out. Have have that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Get over that shyness and talk to people because I know it can be really helpful to get yourself connected with, with the communities you want to be connected with. Definitely. And if you do want to follow her on Twitter, it's at A-E-N-E-I-A-A, -A -A, um, Ania. Yes. So hopefully you guys will follow if you're interested in that. And if you're interested in Dev Dive, you can always follow the stream at twitch.tv slash Nighthawk20,000. That's two with five zeros. Uh, if you can't watch live, you can always watch on YouTube, youtube.com slash Nighthawk20,000. And if you don't want to watch live in video or on YouTube, you can always listen on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and uh, all other spot or podcast platforms. So if that's something that you're interested in, check us out. It's Dev Dive. Should be hopefully easy to find. If not, we have a problem. Um, and if you want to give us a follow and a rating on those platforms always helps us, helps other people find the show. And always you can share it with other people if you like the show or a particular episode give us a, uh, a link to a friend and hopefully they enjoy it. And as always, uh, if you want to talk to me personally, I'm always on my Discord, discord.gg slash Nighthawk. So if you want to join that and 
hang out with me. Um, I'm there pretty much 18 hours a day. So um, hopefully everyone enjoyed the show. And I think that this was a great episode. So thank you again. And all awesome. of you have an excellent evening.